Packers Daily with Jason Mertides. And welcome to your Monday, November 23rd edition of Flyers Daily with Jason Mertides. It is Thanksgiving week, and my thanks is to you, everybody who listens to Flyers Daily. I truly appreciate it, and we've had some great stuff in the last couple of episodes with Flyers Hall of Fame week. And in this episode... Nearly an hour-long discussion. Bill Meltzer joins me, and we have an hour-long discussion with Flyers Hall of Famer, NHL Hall of Famer, and the son of Gordie Howe, Mark Howe, on this episode. What a revealing look this is into the life, the career, the family man that Mark Howe is. Uh, Everybody, I know this week is less than ideal and not your normal Thanksgiving, but I hope for each and every one of you, you are happy, healthy, and doing well. Uh, If you've missed any of the past couple of episodes for Flyers Hall of Fame week, we've had some great ones. Wow, this has been so much fun to do. Uh, Last Monday, we talked to Dave Poulin, former Flyers captain. Uh, We talked to him for a, a good session, Bill Meltzer and I. Also had a chance to catch up with former Flyer great and now Arizona Coyotes head coach, Rick Tockett in last Wednesday's episode and last Friday's episode featured former Flyer and now current Carolina Hurricanes head coach Rod Brindamore. As I said, Mark Howell will be this episode's guest along with Bill Meltzer. And also coming up on Wednesday, we'll talk to the Flyers Hall of Famer and NHL Hall of Famer Billy Barber. Wow, that's going to be a great discussion from, with him as well. And on Friday's episode, uh, Sam Moran will join Flyers Daily. We'll get an update on what it's been like for Sam Moran uh, since suffering that ACL injury once again. He has been rehabbing all through the pandemic and all through the NHL pause, which originally happened in March. We'll talk about to Sam about what it's been like dealing with the, the multiple injuries that he's been, been dealt over the last three and a half years at this point and how uh, he's kind of picked himself off the mental map, uh, Matt, to, to really kind of put in the work and not give up on the dream of being an everyday NHL player. So we'll talk to Big Sam coming up on Friday's episode. But right now, Flyers Hall of Fame week continues. What a thrill this conversation was, and I hope you enjoy it. Bill Meltzer and I, and here's our conversation with Flyers Hall of Famer, NHL Hall of Famer, Mark Howe. Very happy to have join us on this episode of Flyers Daily as Flyers Hall of Fame week continues. And boy, this this player was unbelievable. Great player, great person. Great book as well. We'll talk about that coming up. But Mark Howe joins us on this episode of Flyers Daily. Howie, how you doing? Uh, doing okay. Trying to do like everybody else and uh, keep active and, and stay safe at the same time. So, uh, yeah, I just wish everybody well. Hope everybody's staying safe. Uh, Howie, at this time of year, you know, the leaves are changing. The temperatures are dropping. Your entire life has been dedicated to the sport of hockey, and you've been associated with it uh, really since you knew uh, what's it like for you not having the game on the ice now at the NHL level at this time of year when usually we're starting to learn what teams are? I, I don't know. It's bizarre. I, I, I've been doing um, uh, some computer scouting. Uh, we've had some assignments. We're watching guys over in Europe. Uh, I know a couple months ago we were doing uh, the stuff for guys in the American League and the NHL. And um, and I think I think it's a, it's a decent way to scout, but it's not the same as, as being there. Um, you know, I, I'm used to being in Hershey, Wilkes-Barre, uh, Allentown, uh, Philly, Jersey, uh, Rangers, Islanders. Like I said, you're normally doing five or six games a week. If you get a tough stretch, you're doing 14 games in a row. And, uh, but now I'm doing three hours at home and, or three days at home and three or four days down at the shore. And, um, I ran around in my little boat a little bit and did some fishing and different things. So, uh, I'm, 
I'm trying to stay, uh, tr just trying to stay active. I, I try to get out and run every day and, uh, but it's, uh, yeah, it's totally different. It's, it's something I've ne never experienced before. You know, I, I think one of the most extraordinary things in your career and something that I think that a, that a lot of Flyers fans don't know or forgotten, of course, was that you would, you were a forward in, in the World Hockey Association. Um, you, I don't think a lot of people know that you were the all-time leading playoff scorer in that league. And, you know, you were a 40-goal scorer the year before the merger uh, with the NHL and the World Hockey Association. And uh, so kind of mid-career, you made the switch to, to playing defenseman. I think you're about 25 at the time. What was that like? And did you, you know, did you find that you enjoyed playing defense more than you enjoyed being a forward? Yeah, well, it, uh, I'd played a few games on defense uh, down in Houston under Bill Deneen. And then, uh, then I got back to my position when everybody got healthy. And um, I'll never forget my first game as a defenseman. Uh, I, I skated the morning skate on left wing on my dad's line, which I had been for about six years. Uh, came to the rink and uh, saw my name was listed on the board as a defenseman. And uh, so I erased it and put it back on the wing. And then the coach came in and said, who's messing with the board? So that's how my career started as a defenseman. And my first shift was against Gilbert Perot. And my defense partner pinched in. The puck came out. He came down to me. And believe me, my heart was probably beating 200 beats a minute. I was so nervous. And um, uh, I was praying to God to please help me out in this situation. Well, the puck bounced off his stick. I laid on it at about a 15 second shift and I had to change, I was out of breath. So that's how my career started. I, I played defense for, uh, I guess it was about two years uh, before I became a flyer. So by the time I got here, uh, I was still very much in the, in the mode of trying to learn how to play the position. Uh, I mean, I was, I was born with some God-given abilities that I was fortunate to have. And, um, you know, I think it allowed me to make up some of the, the mistakes that I made, but uh, the one person I always credited uh, with uh, my development as a defense was former flyer Ed Van Hill. Um, Ed used to say to me, so what can I teach my first year here? I was in the running for the Norris. He said, what can I teach you? I said, nobody's ever taught me a thing ever about playing defense. So Ed told me, uh, taught me how he played the game. Uh, using the dots, using different reference points on the rink, uh, knowing your opponents, knowing your own players. How do he told me how he thought the game uh, with his limited skill ability, and I tried to apply that uh, to my game. And uh, and also I had great defense partners and like Shell Samuelson, Brad McCrim, and um, uh, Glenn Cochran when I first started. My partners were great because you can't become a good defenseman unless you have a really good partner and good teammates around you. And I had great, great partners that uh, that helped out. They allowed me to jump on the play. I knew where they were going to be. We trusted each other. Uh, but most everything I learned was from Eddie Van Epp. And then once I learned, uh, I guess, how to make the correct decisions, then I made less mistakes. And that's when I became a better player. When he talked about uh, the dots, was he talking about playing inside the dots? Yeah, using the dots as a reference, uh, mm -hmm. recognizing even say you have a two on one from the far blue line. He said, you know, instantly recognize. He says, you dictate who you want to have the puck. So if I got Brett Hall on one side and I got, say, Mike Ridley on the other, who was a good player, well, who would I rather have the puck on or stick 
taking the shot. Well, I would rather have Mike Ridley. I'm going, it's like going to the casino. You're playing the odds. And, and then he said, you remember, you're playing two on two. It's not two on one. And, but you're going to give the, your goalie the best opportunity to make the save. So my job was to make sure that Mike Ridley would shoot the puck uh, rather than uh, Brett Hall shooting the puck. And because a mistake had already been made for a two-on-one, he said, don't compound it and make that mistake worse by giving a guy a break. It's simple little uh, thought process things that, um, uh, that help. I, and I know, I, especially with Brad McCrimmon and with Shell Samuelson, uh, anytime we had a three-on-two, uh, we would work in unison and we would attack them at, at our blue line. Uh, but you can't attack by yourself. You have to both be aggressive. And you found out through trial and error that it worked against 99% of the league. It didn't work against Mario. It didn't work against Wayne. Uh, obviously, Brian Trotche and, uh, you know, I've talked Bossy. about Bossy. Yeah. yeah, and Bossy and stuff. So you had to learn who you could be aggressive with and who you weren't. And that's that's all a part of the process. It, that's why it takes a long time for a defenseman to develop into uh, the players that they generally are when they're, once they hit 25, 26, because now they have the physical attributes, they have the endurance, uh, their body's stronger, but also now you have the knowledge of how to play the game and not make mistakes. And that's why a lot of guys hit their prime, uh, you know, at 25, 30 years of age. How about let me follow it up real quick because is it as simple? Because there's kids that listen to this that play the game uh, with their dad or whoever, and, and they got turned on to this. And we talk a lot of strategy and about elements of the game, and they always want to know how to get better. Is that about you as a defenseman, you and your partner, if it's a three on two, or you yourself in a two on one? Is that about you dictating the terms of what's, what's going to happen when you're outmanned and kind of taking control of the situation? Uh, yeah, and that's basically kind of what Eddie Van Imp told me. He says, you, mm-hmm. you you dictate what you want to happen. You dictate who you want to have the puck, who you want to shoot the puck. And if you can make a guy go wide, obviously you want the guy to shoot from the angle rather than the puck coming to the middle. And you obviously can never, ever let the puck come across uh, because once you – and then not only do you work with your partners, now you're working with your goalies. And your goalie has to have a trust in you as well. And uh, so, because once you're committed to denying a play, then the goalie can commit to facing that, that opponent. And, and if you mess up and you allow that pass to come across, well, the goalie is obviously out of play. So uh, it's a communication and it's uh, practice and practice and practice uh, of working together with your defense partners. And like I said, a lot of that comes from, you have to know your opponents. And that's more difficult, obviously, in youth hockey uh, because you're not playing your opponent year after year after year and you get to know that guy in and out, what their tendencies are. Uh, but it's, uh, yeah, but you can, if you're, if you have good mobility, uh, uh, like I said, if you can skate well and you have partners that work together as a pair, there's a lot of things you can dictate as defensemen. You talked a little bit before about playing for, for Billy Deneen and the uh, World Hockey Association. Of course, he was a guy who was close with your dad from the time they played together in Detroit. And then, of course, you later played for Billy uh, at the end of your time with the Flyers. What, what was he like as a coach, and, and how did Billy help influence your, your career? Yeah, well, I also had him in Hartford, too, for a little bit. But uh, yeah, where Bill helped me the most is uh, when I first got to Houston as an 18-year-old and 
I know I had I know I had a lot of ability as an 18 year old. I don't think I was uh, uh, mentally strong enough at the time as I look back. And I think where where Bill helped me a lot. So I'm, I'm going to Houston, and I'm skating and I'm working and I'm pressuring. It's not like today. I mean, most of the guys were so out of shape. I think I'd skated every day for two months at a hockey camp. So you're going up and down the ice and. Uh, back in those days, you weren't allowed to drink water. You were, weren't allowed to do certain things. Well, you'd lose, I'd lose 10 to 12 pounds of water weight uh, in a morning skate in two hours. And then you're coming back and skating again for two more hours in the afternoon. And so I was getting dehydrated and I'm getting headaches. And I, like I was having a heck of a time. And some of it is internal stress that I put on myself of wanting to achieve and the pressure of Trying to, I just signed a contract for uh, uh, that made me 125,000 a year. Meanwhile, the greatest player in the world was making 100,000 a year the year or two years before. So there's a, there's a lot. I put internal pressure on myself to want to do good, uh, and then it, and it was it was weighing on me. And Billy came over and he knew me well. And he came over and gave me a pat on the back and said, "Hey, kid, relax. You're on the hockey team. Like it'll be fine." But the best thing he did is, because uh, I was used to playing power play, penalty kill, all the special teams, uh, having tons of ice time. But we had a real veteran team. Uh, Bill put me on the line. My dad was uh, right winger. We had Jimmy Sheridan center. I was on the left wing. Uh, but I didn't play the power play. I didn't do any penalty killing early on. He gave me a taste of penalty kill after a while. And then after a few more months, he gave you a little taste of the power play. Well, he let me work into the job. He let me work into, I had to earn, uh, you know, what I needed and uh, the ice time that I wanted to get. And uh, Bill was great about it. And I, and I saw him handle everybody the same way. Um, and he, he, absolute wonderful, wonderful man. One of the best people I ever met in the game of hockey. And uh, he's one of those guys that if you played a bad game, uh, and you stunk the joint out, and most of the time, coach come in and screams and yells and hollers. And, uh, I mean, there's two guys I think I played for. So then you go have a few beer at the bar, and um, so on. I said, but there's two guys I played for. One would build the name, the other one was Paul Holmgren. You go to the bar, and I, I felt bad. I felt like I let the coach down. Uh, the other guy they played for, yeah, you didn't, you didn't, it didn't bother you a bit that they yell and scream at you because you had the same, same things to say about them. So, but uh, yeah, no, no, really nice people. Yeah, some coaches um, know when a player struggles, that's not when you ream them, that's when you give them the hug. And when he's playing well, you scream at him to keep him and keep that edge. <laughs> some coaches go with that mentality. But, but how I got to ask you about this because you talked about the pressure of the contract, and I, I mean, your book's called Gordie Howe's Son, A Hall of Fame Life in the Shadow of Mr. Hockey that you wrote along with Jay Greenberg. Uh, I imagine that, you know, your last name always caught a lot of eyeballs. Oh, there's Gordie's son. There's Gordie's son. All from growing up playing minor hockey as well. How did you kind of deal with with that element of it, with your dad being a legend in the game? And then ultimately, like you just said, you ended up on a line with him. Um, I mean, how, how do you how do you compartmentalize that as a young player trying to make your own way? Because you sure did it. Um, I, I, I've always credited, uh, credited my mother with that. Uh, I, I definitely had a couple conversations with her and, um, by the time I was getting to be about 13, 14, where, um, I was playing on teams where a lot of the kids were 18, 19 years of age when I was 14. 
uh, and now I'm leading the league in scoring. Uh, so like, I, I knew I was good uh, when you're playing that far ahead. And so now there's the press clippings, which I never have ever really read. Um, uh, but my mom said, look, like, you're going to be compared to your father all the time. Your name's going to be this and that. She goes, what you're going to need to do is you're going to need to evaluate yourself, what your expectations are out of yourself. And um, so I knew what I expected of myself every single day, whether it be a practice, whether it be a game. Um, and obviously, I, I think my goal for uh, for a hockey game when I was a flyer, because we used to always do like five or 10 game segments. I used to do 20 game segments. I used to allow myself one off night every 20 games. And what I mean by an off night means um, just things didn't go my way. Um, you know, you, you were having bad luck. It wasn't because I wasn't ready to play. It wasn't because of any other reason. Uh, just every once in a while you had a bad night. So, my, and those were the standards that I set for myself. So uh, I didn't need to read a paper. Uh, I didn't need a coach to tell me whether I played good or bad. And, and generally my expectations were higher than theirs to begin with. Uh, I know when even like one of the toughest guys I ever played for was Mike Keenan. They had a rating system and, you know, they'd come in, they'd say their numbers for me are great. You're playing great. And I'd say, well, I'm kind of ticked off. I, I had two, three bad games and here we lost. And I was one of the reasons we lost and I got to do better. And, but, and that was, I think sometimes a positive, but sometimes a negative. Some, I think sometimes I'd get a little too hard on myself and, uh, and that's where I appreciated, like I said, even one time Mike Keenan, Mike Keenan come out, we're standing outside waiting for a bus to go to the LA Forum. And I'd been really pressing for about four or five games and I wasn't playing good. And I was inside my own head. And Mike Kamara put his arm around me and said, hey, you're playing great. Just you're, you're, you're like, you're a great defenseman. Just get out of your head and start smartening up. Just play hockey. I said, oh, okay. And it's, but it's made simple, that. right? I had, <laughs> I had that kind of, uh, I guess, mental, uh, capabilities where bomb, I, that's all you needed. So I, every, and I think every player, you kind of go through that, uh, yep. where everybody gets in a funk. Like nowadays when players get in a funk, like I used to get out of my funk and practice. That's why I love practice because you, you know, once you started to achieve and you turn momentum the other way in practice and, it, and then it just worked in the game. But nowadays, I mean, a lot of these teams, because of the scheduling and uh, I guess the demands on the on the players nowadays, a lot of teams hardly, rarely ever practice. So I don't know how you get out of those funks. Uh, uh, sometimes, I, like I said, I, I, that would be a whole new element for me to deal with in this day and age. Um, you had that serious injury where you got impaled by the net and lost a lot of weight and, and missed time. You know, I know that the uh, the Canada Cup, you know, you. you you know, there was, there was all that going on and, and things kind of went a little bit sour at the end with the Whalers. Um, I, I remember the, that when you were traded here, all the rumors were, the, were that you were going to Boston. And I believe you told me one time you were actually on a, on a fishing trip with your brother when the trade actually went down. Could you uh, kind of recount the story as to you know, how you actually became a flyer? Yeah, well, it was, yeah, things were good in Hartford. I, uh, the, about a year and a half prior to me getting traded here, I, yeah, I got, I got, I call, I got skewered on the net. Um, ended up losing, it was about 20, I think 25 pounds, give or take. Uh, I had lost over the course of about two weeks. And um, I was really fortunate as it turned out. I, mean, I, 
I uh, could have been wearing a colostomy bag. I, I, I missed being paralyzed uh, the whole nine yards, but I, I got back to playing. Uh, I was horrible. <laughs> I was weak. I, I, our team, we were, in, I, we were in eighth place in the league at the time. I got hurt, and our leading scorer, Mike Rogers, got hurt the same night. Uh, I tried to play six weeks later, and we went from eighth to 18th place. Uh, I think I was like ninth or 10th in scoring in the league as a defenseman. I was, it was by far the best year I'd ever had. I was starting to really come into my own. And, um, and then uh, that injury just set me back so far. And then, you know, we got a new coach, new general manager, things changed that summer. Uh, I came back and uh, you know, I, I got invited to the Canada cup. I got a phone call three days before the thing started. I was down in Florida so I wasn't prepared for it, but I got the call. I said, wow, and that's kind of the guy I am. I said, I'm going to show up anyway. And I went there and they had me on left wing right away, fourth line left wing. Uh, even though I think I'd made the all-star team the year for the defenseman. And, um, but yeah, that's fine. I, 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 that kind of guy I was doing what I could. And I was terrible. I was so bad. I was 172 pounds. I was weak as a noodle. So that started my year off terrible. And then I started hearing rumors about me getting, getting traded. So I went in, I said, look, I have a no trade contract. I don't know whether you know it or not. I said, I, I said, I'll go to the Islanders, uh, the Rangers, uh, the Bruins or the Philadelphia Flyers. And I said, they were the four top teams in the league. I said, I'm, I'm used to winning. I hate losing. Uh, I know if I go there, we're going to win. And uh, I want to be a part of that. Uh, and I actually hung up the phone when I was talking to Larry Plo and I called Harry Sinning because I knew Harry up in Boston. I said, Harry, I'll do what I gave him the magic word. I said, I'll do whatever you want. I said, I'll take a cut and pay to come play for your team. So uh, he, he called me back three days later. He said, I just can't do it. They want so much for you. Um, and then uh, eventually they told me they weren't going to trade me. Uh, and then I think in the middle of the summer, I said, oh, you'll find a way to trade me. I said, it's because I'm going to badmouth your organization so bad. I, I was trying to, I was trying to motivate them that I, I needed to get out of there. I, I, uh, I was mentally done there. Uh, they were mentally done with me. And, uh, so, and this was prior to cell phones. So I'm all packed and I'm ready to go fishing on a three day fishing trip with my brother out in, uh, uh, out of Montauk point. And I get a call from the whaler's office and they said, well, we need you to come in. And I said, well, I'm out the door. I'll be back in three days. So I think the deal was made. They needed my okay, but they, wait, they had to wait three days for me to come back. And uh, so then I went in, they told me I got traded. Uh, I drove home. My first phone call was talk to uh, Mr. Snyder and uh, I'll never forget, I called him and he answered the phone. He was right in the middle of eating a peanut butter sandwich and he was gnawing away and he said, oh, excuse me for a minute while I eat. So he can, I would say I was excited. I was, uh, I, I was really excited to make that phone call. So happy and, um, yeah, also nervous, but he, uh, so yeah, just by his demeanor and all, he settled it right down and, uh, to hear the words come out of him, uh, you know, like we want you, we want this and that. Uh, I think that's any, any athlete, that's all you want to hear. You want to be part of a team. And, and as it turned out, I mean, the philosophies of uh, the way the Flyers organization was run from top to bottom, uh, it's always team first. Uh, and it's about winning and losing as a team, never individual. And that's how I was brought up. That's what my family was. Uh, that's what I've always believed in. And I know that's the only way you can have success. So uh, 
it was a great fit for me. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a, and it was the beginning of, I think probably the maybe I would say six or seven best years of my career. Well, absolutely. The trade happened on August 19th, 1982. Uh, the Whalers uh, received Greg Adams and Kenny Lindsman, an 83 first round pick, which they took David Jensen, uh, number 20, and then a third round pick as well. And the Flyers got Umark and a third round pick, which they turned into Derek Smith, who actually turned out to be a, a contributing player as well that you played with. Uh, l- let me ask you about, you know, playing in Philadelphia, because uh, Flyer fans are rabid. Philadelphia sports fans are rabid, as you know, very know very well. And those years, you know, Mike Keenan comes in and you guys are a cup contender in 85. Obviously, uh, you know, you go to the final and Pelly was so good winning the Vesna trophy and just burst onto the scene. Um, and then in 87, you go and you take on that Oilers team with all those Hall of Famers. When you look at like those years, kind of from 84, 85, all the way through like 89, what really sticks out to you about that group of players? Because it was a sum of the parts team and you had some great players on that team, but you guys seem to have something really special. And maybe part of that was the loss of Pelly in there as well. Uh, yeah, well, they're, they're really lucky to have Ron Hextall uh, sitting in the wings because Hexy obviously had a couple of great, great, excuse me, great, great years. But uh, yeah, it was it was always it was always a group uh, that won these games. I mean, you watch the emergence of I mean, like Zezel and I mean, you watch the emergence of talk and I think Brian Prop's game went to a new level. Dave Poulin had pretty much just arrived. Uh, Timmy Kerr was really coming into his own, like Brad Marsh and Doug Crossman. Um, you know, then we, we had the, my partner, the beast and a lot of guys. So, I mean, it was, it, we were deep. So, I mean, the Murray Cravens, the Sutters, the, I mean, you, you can go to the Lindsay Carsons, everybody chipped in at a certain point. Yeah. Uh, like I said, you don't have success without it. And, and you know, I, and I, I think anywhere you went, everybody said, well, the Flyers aren't very skilled, but you know, they work. I think we took pride in that. We took pride in that we played like a team. We played hard every night. Uh, we tried to show up every night. We, maybe we weren't the most skilled team, but I think if you go back, uh, you look at the skill level of a prop, uh, Ilka Sinisello, uh, Pelly Eklund, uh, and the list goes on. Murray Craven, I mean, a lot of these guys put up some pretty good numbers. Rick Tock became a pretty darn good hockey player. So uh, there was a lot of good players on those teams. You don't realize it, I think, until you go back a few years. But, um, yeah, and I, and I think we had, we had a good guy behind the bench for pushing the buttons, that's for sure. So, uh, but, yeah, they, uh, but that group of guys, I mean, I played with some pretty good uh, – I was in some pretty good locker rooms, one being in Houston. Um, uh, and I said, but for me, without a doubt, the best group of guys that I played with collectively for about a six, seven year period were, was with the Philadelphia Flyers. You guys were treated like Beatles at that time in town too. I mean, you guys were rock stars, man. Well, I don't know about that, but we'd hang out to small little local bars, a couple of younger guys, they'd want to go into the city and go to the rock stuff. But nah, we're, uh, to me, the bottom line was like, uh, yeah. And I remember a few games where. I'd make a really bad mistake. The other team would go in and score and eh, with the crowd, sometimes they boo guys. But all I got was a sigh, like, Ugh. like they couldn't believe it. Howie, what was how doing on that one? So no, nah, the people were good to me. Uh, but I do know why. like, I would expect the same out of players as I think what the, the fans in Philadelphia expect. 
you want your team to show up. You want your team to be prepared and work hard. And if you're giving it your all, I mean, we lost we lost Edmonton in 85 and 87. He had all those people at the airport. They took pride in the fact that their, their hometown team gave it their all and uh, they didn't hold anything back. And I think... Uh, I think that's what the expectations should be for any city. So I think as an athlete, uh, I, I know when I first came here, we had a couple of good regular seasons. I don't think we were really prepared for the playoffs. Uh, we lost out and, you know, and there's a lot of jeering and rightfully so. So I, we felt bad as players too. So uh, yeah, you, you, you enjoy, uh, yeah, like I said, but if you go out and you give your all, hey, you can walk around town with your head held high. Before uh, before those mid-80s teams, as you talked about, you had some teams that had a lot of regular season success. You know, you, you had a lot of Hall of Famers on those teams, not just yourself. Clarkie was still playing. Billy Barber was still playing. Daryl Sittler had a 40-goal year, your, your first year with the Flyers. But the team had trouble advancing in the playoffs. And even then you had, you know, uh, Brian Propp, Timmy Kerr. I mean, some of those guys who really came into their own another year or two down the road. If you, if you look back, you know, what was – what was the element missing from the team in those years that ended up coming together, you know, when Keenan came in and some of the other, you know, infusion of young energy, the, the Rick Tockets, the uh, you know, Peter Zezels, before those guys came along, what, what would you say was, if you had to point to one thing, what was missing from the team those first couple of years you were here? Uh, like I said, you, everybody thinks regular season is just regular season, but I, it's not. I, I know, I, and I think as an example, I know when, uh, when I was with Detroit uh, and scouting, and like I said, my last year, we went to the finals in 95. From day one of training camp, there was a mindset with the coaches that was instilled in the players that nothing short of utter success is going to be acceptable. Um, and, you know, and I think with Mike Keenan here, we, we kind of had that. I like we, uh, you know, Mike just instilled from day one. I got, we beat, we outshot Quebec one night, 54 to 12 or something. We, they never got the puck over their blue line. Um, their goal, uh, I, for, I might have been Mario Gosselin. I forget the goalie. But anyway, he stood on his head and they beat us two to one. Mike came in and, oh, my God, did he give us some verbal abuse. Uh, and, I, and I know one time we – uh, I think we, I think it was year two where we came out and we were winning like crazy. I think we won like five, six and we won easy. We won six, two, seven, one. We're just dominating teams. And Mike Keenan, Mike Keenan came in and he started screaming at Tockett and myself and a few other guys. And he goes, you think this is hockey? This is not hockey. He says, I'll show you guys tomorrow at practice. Well, he gave us an hour and 15 minute skate just beat us to death and we played the rangers i think the next night uh or two nights later well we lost but the game took four hours there was fights all over mike went away mike went away smiling happy and it's uh, over the course of the year you learn how to win the ugly hard games and once you go in and you're tested and there's games that you really need to come up big you need to win one nothing uh, I, I think it was about the middle of that first year, maybe January, February, somewhere in there. I think as a team, we started to believe that we can win. 
And to me, I and my my youngest son, Nolan, he coaches. And I said, the hardest thing for a coach to do is get your team to believe they can win. Uh, I know when the Eagles won, if you listen to the interviews, nobody gave him a prayer in the Super Bowl. But if you listen to all their interviews, they all thought they knew they were going to win. And that's part of why they won. So, uh, yeah, and I think that's kind of what Mike Keenan instilled in us. I think that maybe we didn't have uh, the prior couple of years I was here. And because I, I know going in the playoff, we expected to win, but we knew we were going to win and we weren't going to be denied. That was, I think that was a different attitude than the teams that were uh, the two years prior. Howie, I always reference this line from uh, the old NHL general manager, agent Brian Burke. He says, in hockey, 80% of hockey is goaltending. Unless you don't have it, then it's 100%. Um, and you, you were here with Belly Lindbergh, and he, he was a superstar, and he was on his way, and then the tragedy happened. And then uh, Ron Hextall comes in as a rookie, and he was sensational. He won the Conn Smythe, obviously, uh, in a losing effort against that Edmonton Oilers team in Game 7. Um, but you said that Ron Hextall's rookie year was the best you've ever seen by a goaltender. A, did you have any expectations when he came into that season that he would be good or not that good, but good? And do you still feel that he, that was the best uh, season of goaltending you've ever seen in, in your history watching this game and being a part of it? Yeah, because we uh, Ron was asked to do a lot more, I think, than maybe some other guys, especially in the finals. So I, another guy that I played with down in Houston, uh, goaltender Ronnie Graham. Um, I know uh, my second year with Houston, we won the Avco Cup again, and uh, Ronnie was our starting goalie. I, I led the playoffs in scoring that year by, uh, I think, a distant margin, and I was on fire. Things were going. He was hands down. I think his goals against average was under two in the old WHA back in the day. Wow. It was just, just phenomenal. He was, um, he was so good. Like, you didn't matter what chance, who had it you knew he was going to stop it. Well, I think that's, we all had that same feeling with Hexy. I mean, uh, some of the saves he made against Quebec and different things. And, uh, but you, you knew right from the get-go that um, you didn't know how good Ron was going to be, but you, you knew how competitive he was going to be mm -hmm. every single day. And like I said, I, I, uh, the thing I like probably the most is, like I said, I, I learned how to play and how to compete at practice every day. Um, and I, I gave it my all every day. I mean, I, I watch Ron Hextall every day at practice. And boy, if you score goals on him, oh, he would get so frustrated. You know, if you got drills where you're doing their passing, shooting drills, and you overpass, and, uh, which is in not a real game situation, oh, he'd come out, he'd be shooting pucks at you and two-handed everybody. And uh, <laughs> it was good. But, yeah, no, Ron was – uh, uh, yeah, he was, he was so, so good that year. And it's, and it's hard to say, I mean, I, he would have had a great career, uh, a heck of a player without a doubt. I think that was the best year he ever had, uh, no matter what statistics say. For you as a defenseman, Howie, uh, he came into the league and really revolutionized playing the puck. How much of an adjustment was that for you? I know that saves the defenseman, but the defenseman got to know, don't go to the goalie when he's got the puck and he can handle it like him. You got to go to a spot where he can get it to you. And he could shoot the puck at, like many forwards. I mean, it was unbelievable how well he could handle a puck with a, with a, a glove on his hand and with a goalie stick. What, what was that adjustment like getting used to a goalie that played the puck like he did? Uh, 
Well, it was a nice adjustment. It just took a little time. I, mean, I, I was used to coming back and getting the puck and look over your shoulder and see if you had room. And uh, if there was room, I, I wanted the puck on my stick and get up and make the play. Well, after a few times where he's shooting and it hits me or I'm trying to get my stick mm -hmm. on it and deflecting it, uh, after I said, okay, well, he's not going to change, so I'm going to have to change. <laughs> uh, so, But where I found it the most beneficial was especially when you're shorthanded because teams tend to relax a little bit. And most of the times I'm killing penalties. It was with a pool and a prop. Uh, one of them would find a seam up between the red line and the blue line and Hexy could snap that pass. Well, and if I see the seam is there, the players there. And like I said, you have to have confidence. I had all the confidence in the world. Hexy, once the play was there, I knew he could make it. Well, before he even makes the play, I'm starting to take off. That's how thing, that's how things work when you work as a team. I think the one year, I don't know, I had eight shorthanded goals or whatever. And the reason, one of the reasons is, well, there's two great players up front, but the other one was I got a goalie who, who can move the puck that well, which affords me to not take chances. I guess it's called, uh, you're making an, uh, it's an educated improvement in your game. That's risk management. <laughs> Yeah, I know. So, uh, but no, he, uh, but I, I, I'll never forget to, uh, we, I was hurt. Uh, we made a trade. We brought in Mo Matha because uh, we, we had a lot of injuries on the back end. I think it was my back was bad. And I, I had known Mo for a while. So I went up and said, hi. I said, look, before the game, there's one thing you need to know. I said, when the puck goes to Hextall, just don't try to call him off. Let him go. You go to the front of the net or go up the board. He actually normally went up the strong side. So I said, just go in a support position on the strong side. And you'll be okay. Well, I don't forget. It was in the second period. I'm watching from the press box. Puck comes to Hexy. So Moe's going to pick it up, and he keeps calling Hexy off. And Hexy shoots it, hits his pad, and goes in our net. Yep. And after the game, after the game, I said, "What part of what I said didn't you understand?" So. Uh, but I, I had done the same thing. I was just trying to save him uh, the embarrassment that uh, we all went through. <laughs> uh, I'm going to ask in a second about Brad McCrimmon, but you know, you, you referenced earlier that the KG Bob McCammon that puts you originally uh, with Glenn Cochran, and that it didn't seem to be a you know a natural meshing of styles. But the two of you really, really clicked together. Um, you know, how, how did you how did you and Glenn kind of come together like that? Uh, well, my first training camp, we were up in Portland, Maine, and uh, they stuck us together right away. And uh, uh, obviously, Glenn's one of the toughest guys I've ever seen. Loved to fight. Nickname was Toons. That's all you need to know. Uh, but he was a better hockey player than people gave him credit for. Um, and the understanding we had amongst each other was... Uh, um, you know, I told him, I said, if I got the puck, I'm rushing out the ice. I said, you just stay in your position. I said, I will be back by the time the puck hits our blue line. If I'm not back, I want you to give me, you know, you can ring me out when I hit the blue line. That's my job. And so I'm trying, I'm, I'm making myself accountable to him. So Glenn played his spot. I played my spot. Um, and like I said, he, I think we were maybe one week, five days in the training camp. They call us both into the office and they look at me and they said, Mark, we want you to go out and play hockey and do what you do. And I said, right. And they look at Glenn, who's six, three and built like an Adonis. They said, Glenn, your job is anybody touches him, you take care of it. 
So Glenn put his arm around me and he goes, hey, don't worry, buddy, you'll be okay. And I was <laughs> like, wow, I said, this is a little different. So I, I didn't mind getting hit, but uh, and I'll never forget, we're playing a game in LA. I think it's like game three or four of the year. And, and I'm coming behind the net and I'm pretending like I have my head down because I want the far winger to, to come behind the net and then I can stop and go the other way. So I've eliminated one of the four checkers right away. Well, this, this young kid's biting on the situation. And as, as he's coming, I stop behind the net and he tries to finish his check and he runs into the glass and boards behind me. I take off, I'm leading a rush the other way. And here comes Glenn over the bench because on a line change and his jersey and pads and equipment are all coming off and he's chasing this guy all around the <laughs> rink. And I can hear this guy yelling, I didn't hit him, I missed him. I didn't hit him, I missed him. I, I was laughing so hard, so. Uh, what the intent did, was there. <laughs> yeah, well, what that did, and you, you still, you took your hits, um, but you didn't take the really hard, nasty ones because you knew who you had to answer to, and I wouldn't want to answer to that guy. So, uh, but like I say, Glenn was a smarter <laughs> hockey player than a lot of people gave him credit for, and and I've seen like I watched my dad and Bobby Hall play, two of the probably the greatest right winger ever and the greatest left winger ever. They couldn't play together. They were terrible together. They had no history or no chemistry. Uh, with Cocker, I had a lot of chemistry, as with as with Shell and 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 with Beast. So you and you adapted. You learned to play uh, different styles, and but you complement each other, and you always have have each other's back. So and I I know like with Brad, uh, I remember one time we had a two on two. I tripped on the ice or fell. I don't know. Guys go around me. They go in and they score. We get to the bench and Brad's cursing and swearing. He's and I said, "Be sorry, man. I fell down. I, I, you know where." He said, "No." Nah. He says, "I had your back, man." He said, "I let you down." He said, "I can't. I can't do that." Uh, and it wasn't fake. It wasn't funny. It was true. That's how we felt. I mean, you're you're there for your partner and. Uh, like I said, with Shell, Shell is the same way. And that's the only reason it works uh, as a defensive pairing. Right. With the possible ahead, exception of, of maybe Nick Lidstrom and Konstantinov, I, I never have seen two defensemen as a pairing more in sync than, than you and Beast were on a game in and game out basis. Did you kind of know instantly you had something special as a tandem? Um, yeah, I think so. I am. We were. Uh, I mean, you're close with most of the guys, but I was really close. I was really, really close with Brad and and and, and close with Brian Propp. Um, you know, they were teammates. Uh, I got in with them, but Brad and I did everything together. We didn't just – we weren't just together in the game. After the game, that might be over a couple beers. It might be I – mean, you might be up to 3 in the morning, but it's not that you're out drinking. You're, you're sitting there talking hockey. You're talking strategy. If you had a goal against, you're talking about the goal against, say, okay, here's what we need to do tomorrow at practice. Let's work on trying something new and see how it does. So we, we would try to line up against Prop and Cinecello and uh, Timmy Kerr and uh, Dave Poole. And if, if it's working against these guys and we can shut them down in practice, it's going to work against 90% of the guys in the league. So, um, but like I said, Brad, uh, Brad and I, we roomed together for three years. Uh, we spent a lot of time together. And like I said, uh, I bet you we, even after I retired, he retired, uh, we probably still talked at least three days a week. So, uh, uh, yeah, we were, he was, 
you're lucky. I always tell my kids, you're lucky if you have a handful of really, really close friends that you can really rely on. And Brad was obviously one of my top five people. Uh, Mark, let me ask you about, uh, so I, I always look at certain numbers and I go, can someone explain this to me? And there's no better person to try and explain this, this number to me than you. You were a plus 85. Brad McCrimmon was a plus 83. Brad Marsh was even that season, and the rest of the decor was minus. How the heck did you combined have a, I'm not very good at math, 168? Is that what that is, Bill? A, hundred, a plus 168 with you and Brad McCrimmon. And how did you have a plus 85 in a season? <laughs> That's insane. Yeah, well, we could. Let's see, just pay off the ice, off ice officials. So <laughs> now, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, th- obviously, if you do that, things are going well. And uh, uh, I think that year we had a, oh, I think probably about a three-month run. I, I know definitely two months where I don't, th- I think we're on the ice for maybe three goals against. Uh, <laughs> even, even strength the whole time where uh, a lot of it, our goalies bailed us out. Uh, but no, we're, like I said, we're, we're a fortune. I, I think over the course of the three years we've played together, we we're both plus 190 to 200 or something like that. And, um, <laughs> so it's, uh, but yeah, like, but like I said, you, you don't have that without having the team around you. Um, uh, what he did, what I did, we both had quick feet. We both got the loose pucks and we got the puck going the other way, tape to tape. And, um, and uh, it was never about him, never about me. It was never about any awards. It was, uh, it was, I think we were both very selfish for each other. Uh, uh, sorry. It was a plus 87, Howie. It huh? was a, it was a plus 87. I, I, I shorted you too, but, but the thing I, I even asked Bill before you got on to interview to, for this interview and said, did they count pluses for power play goals back then? <laughs> Cause I just can't imagine in that era of so much scoring and, you know, obviously the game's tightened up now and goaltending is so off the charts now. And, you know, players getting 100 points, it, it would be like 160 in that era. I just can't imagine a plus 87. I, I imagine your goaltenders knew when you were on the ice and they felt pretty darn good about that with that pairing out there. Because goalies do know that. They know, oh, this pairing's out here. Oh, I don't love this situation. But, you know, when certain guys are out there, you feel really good as a goaltender and you can play the position differently because there's a trust that, Hey, if I take the shot here, back to to kind of what you said on the two on one, I know the back door is covered. The structure is there, and I know that I got an elite pairing out there. And I'm sure that you made your goalies feel really good. Yeah, well, hopefully so. But yeah, you can't overlook. I, I know Brad and I played a lot. We had a lot of ice time. But also, Brad, Brad Marsh and Doug Crossman, they mm-hmm. made a ton. Uh, I, you know, we we had four guys that I don't know what their minutes were, but there wasn't much left over for anybody else. And um, those guys were both in great shape, especially uh, Marshy and uh, they could handle it. And they were, they were team guys. Like I said, they were this, they were the same old. They just didn't have some of the breaks. And I know sometimes where like Brad would be out there, uh, Brad and Doug, they get the puck going and you're leading a line rush. They turn, they come back to the bench, you jump over Boom, next to you know, we score three seconds later on the off of the rush. Well, I would have nothing to do with it. So, but knowing that, you know, you're trying to help your teammates, you make a U-turn, you come to the bench, and I'm going here, get on the ice, get on the ice. So they give you the plus. You know, nah, nah, like and so 
basically it was, we were all helping each other out. The off-price officials, a lot of times, they'd give me the plus instead of Brad. And um, it should have been the other way around. So, I mean, that was some of it. But um, I, I tell a lot of people, I said, the one thing I, uh, I took a lot of pride in, and I always talk about this at practice, is uh, we always had, uh, under Keen, we had a lot of competition drills in practice. Uh, and we went just over two years where we never lost a competition drill in team drills. Wow. Um, and I, I think that has probably more to do with anything than anything else is because you, you did it every single day. It wasn't just, I, I, uh, I know since I retired and I told some guys I helped uh, work with up in Glens Falls, I said, I don't care how you play tonight in the game. I really don't care, but you better be the best guy in practice today. And you know that it just, when it becomes second nature, it, it's just there all the time. And uh, the guy would look at me funny, like, you know, what's he talking about? Um, so, and then, and I'd go out and I watch guys and he'd be the worst player in practice. So I, I'd come back and I'd, I'd call back to Detroit. I said, look, this guy has no heart, no competitive nature. I really don't have time for him. So uh, uh, I think if, when you have that much success, I, I do believe most of it stay, it stems from your teamwork, but it stems from uh, working hard every single day. And, um, and sometimes you get rewarded for it. You were a guy who was very much a perfectionist and really all about winning, not a stats guy, a, a guy who would ultimately came down to you know, the team winning. And your last few years with the Flyers, you know, it was a transitional period for the team. You, you did make that run to the conference final in 89, but by that point in your career, there were a lot of injuries that they were piling up. You were missing a lot of time. You know, how much frustration was it for you to not be on the ice for, for long stretches and to not be able to help the team at, at a time when, you know, when, when the wins were a lot harder to come by than they used to be? Well, I think you can ask any athlete how, how difficult it is to not be out there. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's basically your family, your second family out there, and you're trying to do everything to be a part of it. And if things aren't going right, it just makes you want to be out there more of it. One of the things that was really frustrating for me was like my back would be fine and I'd play for maybe a month or so. Things would be good. Uh, you really get into the swing of it. And then I'd twist or turn and boom, down I'd go again. And uh, I went, uh, I think I had four MRIs. Uh, I want a year and a half. They couldn't find anything. And finally, uh, finally one doctor, he did a myelogram. He did a CAT scan after the myelogram and they saw one frame. Uh, that they showed, well, your, your disc is, uh, is bugging you and we can go in and clean it up. And um, so, but it took me a year and a half, almost two full years. And then uh, after the surgery, I was back skating within three and a half weeks. And I, I think I was maybe about, oh, about four or five days away from playing. Uh, and I had my first practice, had a really good practice with the team. I'd been skating on my own. Uh, and I was lucky. I mean, all I needed to do is skate three days and I would feel great, feel comfortable on the ice. Uh, I went up to the weight room and I was doing some twisting and turning and boom, my back went out again. So I know I, I was pushing, trying to get back and, uh, and I know I re-injured it and it took me probably another year after that before I was able to, um, to, uh, effectively start playing again. So yeah, I was, so they, the most frustrating part was they, I knew something was wrong. 
thank God the team knew me. They believed me. If I was in a place where a team didn't, because sometimes you have management, they don't believe the player that something's wrong. Um, and then uh, I finally had a doctor came to me. He said, look, he said, I don't know if I can help you play hockey again, uh, but I guarantee you, you'll be able to lead the rest of your life uh, uh, without, without half the pain you're having now. I said, I'll take that all day long because I think I was 34 at the time. And, um, and, and I was very fortunate. The surgery, I think it was uh, Rich Balderson, uh, Philadelphia Hospital. I ended up operated and did a wonderful job for me. And, and I prolonged my career six more years and uh, got me to the point where, because I wasn't, I was ready to quit. Not Because I, I went to five doctors in a row. They all said, just retire. I said, wrong answer. I'm going, I, mean, I went to, until I kept finding a doctor that would operate on me. So, uh, uh, and in hindsight, it all worked out well, but yeah, it was, it's, it's really frustrating. You can ask any athlete that uh, is injured and can't play. It's, it's really frustrating. And it can be torturous for guys that are competitive that get to that level. Uh, Mark, last thing for you. Um, c- can you encapsulate what it felt like when JJ Daniels scored the goal in game six and the fallout from that all the way through that plane ride to Edmonton for game seven? What was that like for your group? Wow. I always said I I thought it was the most exciting goal I've ever been a part of by quite a bit. I mean, a heck of a lot better than the overtime goal I got against the Rangers. So uh, just because the importance of it, the magnitude of it, uh, I I remember sitting on the bench, the bench is vibrating. I looked up at the ceiling. I said, oh, my God, I'm I'm waiting for the paint to start falling off the roof. (laughs) So everybody was there. That's how loud it was. And it was exciting. I I just – it just gets me excited thinking about it now. And uh, we knew uh, we did that and we, and we had the confidence we were going to win after that. And, um, unfortunately, we just couldn't get her done. Hexy did all he could in game seven to get her done. But uh, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, I was fortunate to be uh, a part of that uh, and that group of guys. So uh, uh, for JJ, uh, I've run into JJ a few times and, uh, he said, everybody, everybody asks him about and talks about that goal all the time. So uh, obviously a highlight in his career. And I think anybody who was in a flyer uniform or in the spectrum that night, I pretty obvious uh, memory for a lot of those people as well. Yeah. My parents were at the game section, our row seven, they came home. My mom had a splitting headache. She said it was so loud. She couldn't even, it, it left her with a headache. It was so insane. And just the frenzy of the fan. I mean, it's like the perfect encapsulation of sports. That moment against that team, a team that was so beloved here in Philadelphia. And then to score that goal like that in that building, in the spectrum uh, at that time was just unbelievable. Uh, Last thing for you, Mark. I love to ask people this because your hockey life is so incredible. Um, What does the game mean to you? What does the game of hockey mean to you? As You're you're still in it and you're going to be in it for the rest of your life. You know that you're a lifer. What is, what is the game meant to you and what does it mean to you now? Uh, well, it's all I know, but I, but I think for the people that know me and uh, with the family I was brought up in, uh, I, I've always had a passion for hockey. Uh, I, I love the sport. Uh, I'm still in scouting. What I enjoy the most is seeing the people and visiting the, the past players, present day players, um, you know, all your peers. Uh, but that's also another side to me. Uh, and that other side is my family and enjoying quality of life. Um, that's how my dad was. That's how my parents were. I think I inherited that from them. Um, 
I work really hard. I strive. I still achieve to be the best I can be every single day at scouting. But I also strive to have fun and enjoy my life. Uh, it doesn't mean going out partying and drinking. Uh, I just try to be active. I enjoy fishing. Uh, I don't golf so much anymore. And uh, right now I, I have six grandchildren. I got one more on the way in February. Uh, they're my life. Uh, my children, uh, my grandkids um, uh, here at home with Sharon. Uh, those are the important things in my life. Uh, although hockey is a job, it's provided me the opportunity to have the life that I have. And there's no denying, I, hey, and, and hockey's part of it, but probably the best part of it was the 10 years I had as a flyer. Those are, uh, I had great time in Detroit, love playing in uh, Houston. Hartford was okay, uh, but I, I'm very grateful for the, uh, like I said, I've been in hockey uh, professionally since I was 18. So I'm 65 years of age. Um, I'm very, very fortunate that uh, uh, people have stuck with me. I'm still in the game, but, uh, uh, and I work my hardest at it, but don't ever forget the most important thing in my life are the people that are in my life. So well said. And so much of the game is about that too. It's about not individuals. It's always about the group, the family. And uh, that's so well said. And I appreciate you doing it. You're also a 16 year old Olympian as well. Um, so you've been, you've been in the game at a high level at the highest of levels for so long. And you're a Flyers Hall of Famer. You're an NHL Hall of Famer. And you were fantastic on this episode of Flyers Daily. Uh, Mark, on behalf of Bill and I and all the listeners, we appreciate the time you took today. It was a tremendous conversation. I know I learned a lot and the people listening learned a lot. Um, be well. Best of luck with the book. The book's still available on Amazon and everything. It's a great book. It's a great read. Yeah, I got uh, and I got to uh, say, too, I, I know you all know uh, Jay Greenberg. Uh, yep. Jay's had some health issues of late, so if anybody there can – uh, say a word for Jay. So he's, he's been under some pretty tough times the last three, four months. So uh, I think the families asked that they kind of keep it quiet, but uh, he's had some serious, serious health issues. And uh, so I wish, uh, you know, Jay and Mona and their family uh, the best of luck. And uh, yeah, I, I thought Jay did a great job on the book. I said, the only part I cared about in the book for me was uh, I, I always want to thank my parents. So he wrote a couple of great Great chapters on my parents and, and what wonderful people they were. And, and I, I, they, I wouldn't be here without them uh, as a person or, like I said, as a hockey player. So, uh, uh, Jay, I think uh, did, uh, I couldn't have said it any better myself if I had written it. So, uh, uh, you know, best of luck to Jay and his family. Yeah, we'll put him in our uh, Flyers prayer circle for sure. And uh, seeing you with your dad so many times at the at the in the press box um, was was very uh, comforting as well. Uh, we miss him as well. Mark, thanks for doing this. Uh, be well, be healthy to you, your family, your grandkids. Enjoy it, and uh, we appreciate you doing this on Flyers Daily. Yeah, glad to help. All right, Bill, Jason, thank you. Thanks, Mark. Special thanks to Mark Hal for joining us on this episode of Flyers Daily. Remember, you can catch uh, any previous episodes right there in your queue on iTunes or Spotify, wherever you listen. Last Monday was Dave Poulin. Rick Tockett was last Wednesday. Brindamore was on Friday. Mark Hal, obviously, in this episode. Billy Barber will be coming up on Wednesday, and we'll hear from Flyers uh, defenseman Sam Moran and his rehab from ACL surgery coming up on Black Friday. Everybody, thanks for listening to this episode of Flyers Daily. We'll talk to you on Wednesday, Wednesday's episode with Billy Barber. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll talk to you next time on Flyers Daily. I'll keep your eyes on the road, you have the